This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 47 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, today going out from the Lenape lands known as Brooklyn, New York, to Nagoya, Japan, where I'm thrilled to finally welcome as my guest, Joseph Setier, the chapter coordinator of World Beyond War in Japan, who I've known for a long time as a fellow activist and have had the pleasure to meet in person, though today we're speaking across opposite sides of the planet. Joseph Ersetier is an American living in Japan who has regularly participated in street protests there during 20 of the nearly 30 years he has lived in Japan. In recent years, he has protested shoulder to shoulder with Okinawans and Japanese against the construction of two new U.S. military bases on the island of Okinawa. He often writes about Japan's peace movement, but is trained as a scholar of modern Japanese literature. His research has mostly been concerned with language reform movements in Japan between the 1880s and 1930s, with a little recent research on Chinese movements of the same period, especially movements that aimed at promoting democracy, inclusivity, cultural diversity, and writing by women. He works at the Nagoya Institute of Technology as an associate professor. Well, hello, Joe, and thanks for being here with me. Hello, Mark. It's great to see you again. We were able to meet in person before the COVID days when World Beyond War had global conferences, a couple of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So much to talk to you about, because as you describe an American living in Japan, you do something very few of us ever do, which is break a cultural barrier that to me seems likely to break out into war. I'm not talking about the West's relationship with Japan. I am sort of talking about the West's relationship with Asia and with China, but it's all one one big topic. And let's just go right in. So first, I would like to know about what you are doing in Hiroshima in May. So in uh, between the 19th and the 21st of May, uh, there's going to be the G7 summit in Hiroshima. In case anyone's listening in the future, we're talking May 2023. Right. Hiroshima, of course, is the place where the first nuclear bomb was dropped on civilians uh, in war. Uh, And Japan is the only country in the world uh, that has had nuclear bombs dropped on it. Yes. Uh, Three days after the bombing of Hiroshima, which was the 6th of August, 1945, uh, there was, uh, the the United States dropped another nuclear bomb on Nagasaki. And um, so uh, that is the, with that history in mind, uh, many people have worked hard in Japan uh, and also around other people around the world to make Hiroshima become a city of peace. Yes. It's often it's often referred to as a city of peace. And um, but we have these uh, seven the representatives of these six other countries these six countries um, the US, the UK, France, Germany, Italy and uh, Canada in addition to representatives from the European Union. We have these people coming to Hiroshima, and we can, uh, based on what has the news that's come out so far, it's 
uh, clear that they are going to do, um, they are going to claim that they are working for peace and uh, they're going to try to use Hiroshima uh, for their, to advance their uh, political and military economic interests. Uh, so, um, so we, uh, with the Japan chapter of World Beyond War, are going to uh, do some street protests uh, in Hiroshima um, on the 20th of May. That's a Saturday. And if other, if, by the way, if anybody wants to join us, my email address is very simple, japan at worldbeyondwar.org. And if people want to uh, get involved, if they happen to know people in Hiroshima or Japanese people, uh, they can tell their tell their friends there that World Beyond War is coming, uh, or they can um, talk um, if they if they can actually visit if they happen to be in East Asia and it's not too too hard. Uh, we're going to demand real peace from these countries. Wow, what is it like organizing in Japan? I mean, I know what it's like in my part of the world. What's it like over there? In Japan, uh, it's actually much easier than I think uh, Hmm. uh, people imagine. Uh, I I talk to a lot of foreign people in Japan because I'm a a foreign person. I've been here for almost 30 years. Uh, And um, I'm surprised that there aren't more foreign people because... Uh, for one thing, um, I've done activism in the United States uh, when I was a graduate student and also as an undergraduate um, in California, where I'm from. And I've been, uh, yeah, I've been surprised in Japan that there isn't much violence against protesters, people on the street. Good. And whereas I remember being threatened physically by people a number of times in uh in uh, los angeles well Um, i don't know how much time you've spent in the u.s in recent years because i think you're over there more but um protesting has become much more dangerous um you know the death of heather heyer in charlottesville during a protest seemed to signal a new era of violence against protesters. So mm-hmm. um, especially carried out by, you know, sometimes the, the, the police, um, mm-hmm. often by the police. So it's become much more dangerous here. Um, Joe, if I can ask, um, take me back to the beginning. You were born in California. Who are you? How did you wind up becoming a peace activist in Japan? Mm. Yeah, I, I was born, uh, in a small city uh, in the Los Angeles area called uh, San Gabriel. Um, But I spent most of my childhood in San Diego. And then I spent um, part of, I spent my, some of my undergraduate years and little, little bit of high school and also uh, graduate school in Los Angeles. So, um, I'm mostly a Southern California person, mm-hmm. but um, my first experience with anti-war activism was actually something called the Great Peace March, which is in Los Angeles, 
in like 1986 maybe okay uh, and that was there there were tens of thousands of people uh mostly mostly young people um in downtown los angeles and they gathered there and the idea was that we were going to walk all the way to washington dc <laughs> and make our <laughs> That's a long walk. yeah it's a long walk. and we were going to make our demands i mean i I, w I, I was not going to do it, but I did actually walk the first day with everybody. Um, and uh, there was a there was a rock concert. Great. It was very well organized and it was it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, they took up a whole area, a whole section of downtown L.A. and blocked off traffic. And um, it was just like a, a, fe a festival atmosphere. I remember the 80s very well in the United States. Um, uh -huh. I don't remember it as a good time for political progress. It was when we sort of had a backlash to the progress of the 60s and the 70s, and in my opinion, a backlash to the peacemaking and diplomacy of Jimmy Carter, who tried to reduce you know, the United States tendency to be a bully around the world, and the 80s became the age of Ronald Reagan and the resurgence of American power and American wealth. So my 80s in 1986 i was not i was looking for a protest i didn't find any in new york so i'm glad you did find one in california but what what was the vibe at the time was it a popular movement yeah it um like a lot of my friends uh participated uh, uh i knew a guy who wanted to write a story about it he what he was an aspiring journalist and he and i went up there uh like I can't remember a week or two weeks later, they reached Barstow, California. <laughs> they didn't have anywhere to stay, and so they had to sleep in a in a dump, <laughs> literally in a garbage and at a garbage dump. <laughs> and they were they had like camp camping gear and stuff. Um, so, but the atmosphere um, it was very positive and and really fun. And uh, yeah, a lot of my people, a lot of my my friends were involved in it. People were passing around in those days, people were passing around cassette tapes um, of speeches from Noam Chomsky. Nice. Yeah. I, I don't know if that was happening out in New York, but. In well, yeah, I think it's also a matter of where we were in our lives. I, w I was probably not pursuing it as much as I should have at the time. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. I think I just happened to be in a, in a good situation. I met people who are interested in philosophy and, and uh, activism, and there, I was at a junior uh, junior college or a community college. In my first two years, I come from working class background, so the um, the lower tuition fees was a big factor in my choosing. Wait, do you come from a pacifist background? No. What's no. in what's fact, your my parents, my parents, my mother and stepfather worked for Raytheon for a okay. couple years when I was a kid. Uh, I was a small, uh, like a toddler or so, but they, um, they, they quit and they, they didn't feel good. I think they didn't feel good about it, but they were good jobs back then. Wow. Yeah. Um, they didn't know what they're yeah. doing. They're really young. That's a, very, that's a very similar story that describes some of my background, family background as well. <laughs> oh, really? Contracting <laughs> in the United States is a gigantic business. Um, yeah. Um, interesting. So, so how did you, get oriented towards peace? Um, so uh, that was my first experience with it. And it was a very positive experience. Um, 
and then um of course the cold the cold war or the there was the threat of nuclear war. Uh, I had a friend who, um, whose father uh, worked for JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, in Pasadena, uh, yep. and she was she was she asked her father once, "Is there a chance that, that we might be hit by by nucle- nuclear bombs?" And he said, "He said, yeah, very good chance." And that's why that's why he was in his mind he was building helping to build missiles to, to hit the Soviet Union. <laughs> so I, um, but then, um, my first experience with real of the commitment to activism was as an environmentalist, actually, when okay. I was at UC Santa Cruz, I went to, I was there and that's where I graduated from. And in Santa Cruz was a great, a great place to be in the late 1980s. Um, the feminist movement was really strong. There were lots of environmentalists. Um, and there were like people into science, uh, marine biology and yeah, biology was strong up there. I was in the linguistics department and that's how I came to know a lot of some of, I became familiar with Chomsky's political work. I, you know, I started actually, I was actually reading his writings about language then. Uh, and, um, but uh, yeah, in Santa Cruz, I started working for a group called, um, it was CalPERG, the California okay. Public Interest oh, Research Group. Right. We had NYPIRG in New York. Our backgrounds remain similar. Okay. Re- so you were in Cal Public Interest Research Group. Right. And that, um, and that yeah, that was big um, on campus. I was on campus and they had those, like a, a, a walkway on campus where there were um, various student organizations and political groups on either side. And they were trying to... Uh, recruit members, and yeah, I I saw Calperg, uh, and I saw their I read some of their signs, and I looked at their materials, and so I wound up doing that for three months during the summer of 80, 87, 80, 88. Mm-hmm. and um, I had a great time. It was an, it was kind of job that um, it was that was a Ralph Nader sponsored, you know organization that he right, had helped. It's funny, Ralph Nader came to our New York Perg too, NYPERG. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Parallel worlds here. Go on. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I have, I really, I think uh, Ralph Nader deserves a lot of credit for, for bringing young people in to um, all kinds of social political movements, grassroots, working on democracy and peace and consumer rights. But um, yeah, uh, so I, I spent three months going door to door, uh, collecting, uh, contributions from people, uh, soliciting, uh, yeah, money and, um, and signatures, uh, to, um, stopping, um, there was a list of dangerous toxic chemicals that were being used in California, um, pesticides, as well as, um, cleaning agents for, um, in Silicon Valley. As you know, there's a lot. A lot of people in Silicon Valley have had children who have um, autism and other kinds of neurological problems, and some people think that's from that's from that. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And um, there was the Fairchild uh, accident, um, which there, people might have. I, no, I'm not people, aware of that. This was a industrial accident in California. Yeah, they spilled some chemicals into a local river in California, and people in the area started having um, children with all kinds of deformities and 
Oh, well, okay. Yeah. It was a yeah. big deal in California. A lot of, a lot of people, people who are, who are from California will know about that. Well, you're, you're talking about an age before Silicon Valley became anywhere near as large as it is today too. Yeah. Although it was pretty, it was pretty big then the, 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 the computer industry, I mean, the computer industry was really you know, taking off. Yeah. So how, how did you become involved in Japan? Um, yeah, I went to, I, I, after I graduated, well, let's see my, my first year in college in Los Angeles, I, uh, at the community college, I took a class on Japanese in Japanese. It was the only non-European language that was like 10 languages that they had. And I was just interested in it because it was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, and I also took French. I was, I was interested in France because of my, my family background. SRTA is a, is a originally a French name. I was interested in France and Japan and I just wanted to travel around the world. I wanted to see, see what, you know, just go to other countries. A lot of people wanted to go to the Soviet Union. Uh, a big, a big, a dream of a lot of my friends was to, was to like learn Esperanto and go to the Soviet Union, ride the Trans Siberian Express. But um, I, well, yeah, I got, time when Esperanto was a thing, is it still yeah. to anyone you know? This was a universal language, an attempt at creating a universal language. Right. It was uh, a it was a, an artificial language that was created by a guy named Zamenhof, and um, I'm actually doing research on that now. The Esperanto movement in Japan and China. Um, really? And, but, yeah, yeah. The Esperanto so, movement I mean, and the Romanization movement. Well, I mean, in a way, this brings us to. It's it's funny that in some ways our backgrounds seem parallel, but like I I didn't know that there was an Esperanto movement, and well I'd like to, but I I want to kind of stay on the timeline yeah. here. Now okay. I know a bit about Japan myself, nowhere near as much as you. Like when you talk about Japanese writers, one that comes to mind for me is Yukio Mishima, um, mm-hmm. who of course is yep. a very controversial writer. Yep, that was my first. My first, oh my yeah. God, really? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. so I, I am a, I am a reader of Yukio Mishima. I would, I would have to say that for a pacifist, he mm-hmm. cuts both ways. Um, yeah. actually, that's not even a great phrase to use. He was extremely patriotic, right? Right. Um, could you an, describe an ultra nationalist? Yeah. Yeah. How? What sort of? You know, rather than just talk about Yukio Mishima, but what did you learn about Japan as you were learning about it, including like this mm. tradition, which I have glimpsed and been mm. fascinated by? Actually, yeah, it's actually related, kind of related to Yukio Mishima because uh, in a way, because the book that really got me interested in Japan was um, called Kokoro by um, Natsume Soseki. I don't know that one. Okay. Yeah, Soseki Soseki uh, was writing in the Meiji period, so he was many decades before Yukio Mishima, uh, who was writing in the post-war period. But in Japan, they call it the Meiji period from 1868 to 1912. Well, as I understand, the Meiji period was... Um sort of a reaction to the forced opening of Japanese um, culture, which had been very closed. And so the Meiji period was a ter- tumultuous period. Is that right? A period yeah. Of- it was yeah. a, a, basically the transition from a feudalistic type of society to a capitalist society. 
And a transition that had been forced by American um, gunboats literally in Tokyo um, right. saying we're coming in, humiliating the Japanese. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, um, so they cut, yeah, uh, Matthew Perry uh, yes. came in with his black ship and um, with cannons and, and just basically forced Japan to open, so-called open, which meant open Japan to U.S. business interests. And uh, yeah, that was, and that was the beginning of, of the, um, what are called the unequal treaties and Japan was, yeah, was humiliated and, uh, and also the beginning of the Meiji era, right. right. As you mentioned. Yeah. Right. A little bit after Matthew Perry, but, um, but yeah, 1868 was the beginning of the Meiji period, but it, yeah, because he came, that was part of the, what really forced Japanese to, to, to really, uh, gird the country and build up a military. It was called um, uh, Fukoku Kyohei, uh, Rich Nation, Strong Military, was the campaign that they that the government um, engaged In started. Words, having been completely invaded, you know, just rudely invaded and made to feel vulnerable and helpless, Japan began to identify security and safety with militarism. Right. Well, J Japan, was, uh, most countries in the world were being colonized and uh, basically Japan and China were the, were the only two that U.S. war, or not just U.S., but Western, uh, the military planners of war planners of, of uh, the Western powers, uh, they knew that Japan and China were going to be tough, tough cookies. They knew that it, it was not going to be easy. Um, and that, and, but, um, Japan got lucky because in a sense, because China got hit first and China was a much richer country, had, had resource, huge natural resources. And that, that forcible opening was more the work of European powers and England. Is that right? Yeah. That the, um, the opium, opium. yes, the opium wars, the opium wars, uh, and then, um, a horrible form of exploitation. Yes. Right. And then the U.S. had its open door policy. They were all getting ready to, to carve up China as they had done to Africa and South America. But they, but the U.S., which was the weakest of the of the um, Western powers, the U.S. said, wait, 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 let's not just, you don't have to carve it up like that. We can all share it. <laughs> and so um, China got hit really hard and uh, at a time when China was was relatively weak, um, so that gave Japan to Japan. It wasn't like everything started when Matthew Perry came. They already Japanese were actually, even though it was called it's called a closed country, which is true. Japan was closed in the sense that um, foreign people couldn't come in, and they didn't have a free markets or anything like that. But it it was it, even though it was a closed country, uh, Japan was. Of course, learning the Japanese intellectuals and the so they were sending out. They yeah, were, they knew what was going on. They knew what was going on in the world, and they knew that they knew that colonialism was going to come. The Western colonies were going to, or the Western powers were going to come and try to colonize them. So they had some time to prepare, and there were already yeah. Japan was relatively advanced, like China in terms of um, all, various technologies already. I and say, that, yeah. So they were so, but but Matthew Perry was really what got it start got it started, and then there was what's called the Meiji Restoration when 
the power shifted from the shogunate or the bakufu uh, to the emperor. And the, the emperor had not, the emperor had been a um, spiritual, um, had, had spiritual authority in the, during the Edo period, but he didn't, the, the political, the political power of the country was held by the shogunate. It was based, was basically a family called the, the Tokugawa family were warlords. Uh, and there were in Japan it was very decentralized. That's part of, you know, feudalism, feudalistic kind of society. Um, and each area was controlled by warlords. And uh, so, uh, and, but the, the top, the top dog of Japan was, became the Tokugawa family and they kept Japan peaceful for about two and a half centuries. Um, until and, the, until but, them, this, yeah. Period. yeah. And then, and then it was like, okay, now we need a centralized nation state. We got to We got to become like the Western powers and we got to build up. We got to build up our military, and we and we need Western technology. Was and, was yeah. there always a for, uh, you know this this sense we have of a real Japanese sense of unity because you uh-huh. described a, a decentralized state. Was it a centralized culture? Was it you know no. did everything emanate from Tokyo? No, no. Okay. Interesting. I had never heard that before. So no. so the coming of of outside force caused a decentralized society to become very centralized, presumably upon Tokyo. What did you discover through studying the literature of Japan? So Soseki, his, the novel um, Kokoro, or um, The Heart, Kokoro is hard to translate sometimes because it's, it's the heart and mind. In China, the word, the character is the same. As you know, J- Japanese use Chinese characters. Okay. And the character for is means both heart and the mind. Oh wow! So, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. So that this division, this division into the 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 spiritual and emotional side uh, of the mind um, from the uh, analytical and logical thinking type of mind. Um, those those that kind of I think that became more emphasized as Japan became, and Japan and China both were uh, became got exposure to the West. But the, re- the idea is really yeah, the kokoro. The word kokoro is is both. And so I was I, I was fascinated by this book because it was it was kind of a, a sketch of of a the the heart and the mind of a of a young man growing up who fell in love or was attracted to a, a woman uh, and he had a friend who was a Buddhist who was aspiring to become a Buddhist priest and was, you know, um, trying to hold back his, his desires. And I saw a lot of parallels with Christianity and I, I, I grew up with a lot of um, uh, what do you call it? Um, kind of Holy Roller um, uh, Pentecostal, you know, Pentecostal born again, Christians, that was that was the the Christianity that I grew, I grew up with in California, and so I saw a lot of parallels with like the the emphasis on holding back the the desires uh, uh, to achieve enlightenment or the importance on suppressing one's physical desires. Uh, you see that in Christianity and in Buddhism. Yeah, so it was it was very easy to relate to. Unlike unlike Mishima Yukio, who's is really kind of weird and violent well, and dark. And I, I, when I discovered Yukio Mishima, 
what fascinated me is that he was passionately devoted to the idea that Japan had a had a role in the world that it should fil- fulfill. Is that right? A patriotism mm-hmm. that to me seemed chauvinistic, even yeah, and, very chauvinistic. And yet, and yet was you know while that. If I were to meet an American with that type of attitude about America, the United uh-huh. States of America, I would call this person a, a bigot, a, a patriot, and a white supremacist, and probably a Trump follower, um, yeah. you know, Fox News watcher. But yeah. Yuki Mishima was also a brilliantly sensitive writer who took his life in, in seppuku right. um, because it was the spiritual tradition that he revered so much. And I mm-hmm. I almost feel like I must sound so stupid trying to describe a writer from another culture. No, that's your describe that's a very good description. Um what how do you reconcile nationalism with um Japan's history as, you know, a country that paid the costs of war so terribly? Yeah. Uh, um it's yeah, it's a very nationalistic society and it's a it's a racist society. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, uh, you see that in, you, um, in Mishima too. Um, another great writer of the Meiji period was Shimazaki Toson, and he wrote a book about discrimination in Japan against the the uh, un, what we would like people are familiar with the Untouchables in India. Yes. The, J- yeah. Yeah, and Japan had something like that too. It was called they're called the um, Burakamin or or uh, the discriminated against. Now that, yeah. Nowadays we call it Hisabets Braku. There's a, there's a sort of caste system, in, or there was. Yeah, uh, there, it was based on filth, the, the fear of, 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 yes, of, yeah. of um, filth. And, and so people who, there were, Japan was a caste society, and there was a, this caste that was in charge of doing jobs that were considered really, um, that were defiling, yes. um, like um, killing, uh, slaughtering animals, and um, leather doing leather work, burying the dead, yeah, things, things like so, that. Similar to Western society, and yeah, and Indian. Yeah. yeah. So, so there were, but they were discriminated against caste, and unfortunately, they were not able to hide their. Um, even although Japan got rid of the the old caste system, where you had the samurai at the top. It's called Shino Kosho. Uh, the then the the farmers and the mar- the artisans or craftsmen and the merchants at the bottom of within that's within the those are the commoners and then below below the commoners you had you had this um, the untouchables. I'm, I'm, I'm curious now that you've described that this exists in China in Japan and in India. Is there something similar in China? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I, th- I, th- I see China as really much more a uh, multicultural society. Interesting. And so of course the dominant group is the, the Han, the Han Chinese. Uh, that's and their language is the language that's spoken. Uh, the, 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 the written Chinese classical Chinese is comes from their language and, Modern Chinese uses those same Chinese characters, but I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. And, uh, I know. I know. Then Korea, Korea, they had a they had slaves. Something like thirty percent of the population 
were slaves in the late 19th century, and they they abolished slavery like the United States. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure about China. Actually, I know well, that they had they had they had you know they would have wars and and people would um, ethnic certain powerful ethnic groups like the Han Chinese would would control and dominate other ethnic groups and would call them call them barbarians. So I th- there, was, course, there was similar. The, there was the Manchurian influence as well, the Manchurian Empire. Or, right, um, but you you know uh, actually okay. I'm actually thinking. By the way, I'm a history. Freak. I listen okay. to history podcasts, but let's pull into the present. You okay. talked about Japan was a racist society, or said right. is is Japan a racist society today? Yeah, and still how is. do you feel? How is it that you can safely say that while sitting in Nagoya, Japan, and not? Offend- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't get punched in the face. You know, for for U.S. militarism and the problems that we caused Japan. Well, what is like? Are your uh, tell me about your students? Tell me about your society, the society you live in every day. Yeah. um, So far, we've said a lot of negative stuff about Japan, but it's actually very peaceful in in spite of having this history of militarism and the whole you know samurai uh culture the the samurai mystique um in spite of that uh, it's a very nonviolent culture in, in in actual in actual everyday life in public at least in public life it's very very it's amazingly safe uh, people would worry i had family who would sometimes worry about me walk, traveling around japan on my own but <laughs> You know, you can go anywhere in Japan. In Tokyo, you can go. You can go. Women walk around in Tokyo late at night. You know, maybe maybe there are. I mean, there is there is plenty of sexual violence in this country. I think it's a very different situation for women from what it is for men. It's probably in many ways the sexual violence is what's well, worse in in Japan in the sense that it's a problem that people don't talk about as much as in the United States. It's not, it's, thing. You know, I, when I came here uh, in 1989 and I saw the, the 1990s, I saw how the U.S. emphasis on um, sexual harassment came into Japan. So that, that start, in the 1990s, Japan had a very strong uh, feminist movement and they, they made some major advances. Some of that was also stimulated by what was happening with uh, U.S. and Western feminism. But um, so it's uh, it depends on who you are. But if you're if you're a white American man uh, and you're working here as an English teacher uh, and you you walk, you can you know, you can go anywhere. And it's just totally amazingly safe. My students uh, about my students, um, they're um, they're curious about the world, just like young people in the United States. uh, And. I have very fairly um, the kinds of students who are who are good students and um, how are the system is kind of working for them. Okay. They've got a, a bright future. They actually are able to get jobs. Uh, um, they they know that they're going somewhere. So it's a it's it's a um, it's called the Nagoya Institute of Technology, and so um, 
They're they're great. I, I love my students are, are very very intelligent and interesting to talk to. How are they engaged with say environmentalism um, with um, with the problems of the world? Yeah, not engaged, <laughs> especially at a, at science and technology universities in Japan tend to be very apolitical. Um, the students are just focused on getting a job and um, and uh, contributing to society in, in a material way. So well, the, the, the great, great in Japan is a, a really a great country for, for engineers and, and scientists. Um, right. but, but they don't, yeah, in terms of talking about international relations or our cultures, they're, they're really, they're just not that kind of, these, these kinds, these kids are really interested in science and that's why they've, that's why they're going into it. It seems to me that Japan is being drawn into, um, whatever, whatever the United, whatever the United States is stumbling into in opposition with China it seems mm-hmm. to me that the United States is allowing an economic rivalry with China to morph into a military rivalry with China, and it mm-hmm. seems that Japan is getting drawn into that. Am I right in my concern? Yeah, that's that's right. The U.S. is pulling Japan in, uh, and it's. Um, I like the expression that Bruce Cummings used when he was talking about the situation in South Korea. He called the the U.S. military bases um, the light hold on the jugular. Just as I'm sure, you know, holding this person by the neck and kind of with their, your arm around them saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're best. Yeah, we're buddies. Yeah, let's go. Let's, let's go. We'll take yeah. care of you. Buy our weapons. Spend yeah. all your taxpayer money on our weapons. And... We see how well that has worked out for Ukraine. Yeah. Um, what is the attitudes towards the war in Europe in Japan? Mm. Um, the unfortunately, even within the the anti-war movement, um, the majority of the people are very they very much see Ukraine as the underdog and they want to, you know, stand with Ukraine. Um, there were lots of protests. I mean, it was great at first when, <laughs> wow, for once, you know, after, after Russia invaded Ukraine, it, it was like, wow, suddenly all these people are interested in, in stopping a war. <laughs> so many people uh, started to, to focus on international relations. So uh, that was great. And, but, but, you know, everybody had, had, not everybody, but a lot of people had Ukraine flags, and and there was kind of there was an uncritical attitude towards the government, the actual government of Ukraine, and there wasn't much awareness or in the mass media. They did were not educate journalists were not educating people about what has happened there since 2014. Uh, the 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 coup d'état. People haven't learned about that. Um, what happened in Ukraine in 2014. In other words, the, the, the background of the Ukraine, Russia war proxy war, as I call it. Yeah. Um, it's not well known, but, um, yeah, it, it sounds, it sounds to me like as an, as an activist and organizer, 
maybe at least you've got quite a lot of job to do. Are you are you trying mm-hmm. to actively? I mean, first of all, I can imagine that as an American living in Japan, it's it's hardly a position for you to say I understand this culture so much that I can tell you what to do. But I think you are a representative of America. So as a representative of America, mm-hmm. are you able to say, Hey, wait a minute! Not every American believes in this bullshit. You know, right? <laughs> That um, you should buy yeah. our weapons and become our partner because that hasn't worked out well for for many right. of our world partners. Right. It's it's easy it's easy for me as an American actually to to criticize America, uh, and I'm work at a university. And I'm an associate. I'm a professor there, and so um, and that of course gives you a lot of authority. People are. You know, in Japan, there's a teachers. Teachers in general are are very highly respected, unlike unlike the situation in a lot of places in the United States. Teachers are are respected, even high school teachers and you know K through K through twelve. So it's easy, and as a white American who doesn't face discrimination like a black American would in this country. Like any 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 African person of African descent, or any non-white or non non-Japanese person uh, faces discrimination here. But um, it's yeah, it's easy for me to criticize the United States, and people do listen. I've been in I've been in Japan for three decades almost, and so yeah, that gives I'm you kind of on, kind of on the inside. I'm not yeah, complete. I'm not a complete outsider, but yeah, yeah. Can I ask you about the Ishin no Kai? Yes. Um, which I think you had mentioned is popular among young people. What is this about? Okay, what? it's a it's a political party and it's pro-war. Uh, it's it's what back does that to, mean, it, pro-war? It, pro-war in the sense it's in favor of building up the military in Japan. Japan is the president, um, prime minister, Kishida, like his predecessor, uh, Shinzo Abe, is building up the military of Japan it's often referred to as remilitarization, and so um, and Ishinokai is one of the parties that is on board with that. They try, of course, they try to present themselves as very different from the ruling party, which is the LDP. But they, on in terms of um, like international relations, they are roughly the same. Uh, and uh, so you've got right now you've got the LDP. Um, Ishii no Kai and the Komeito Kome- Party. What is the LDP again? The LDP is the Liberal Democratic Party. Yeah. The LDP okay. has been in power almost during the whole post-war period. There was just a very short time, a few years, when um, uh, there was another another party, Minshuto, so, Minshuto the Democratic Party. That that if there's a movement for change, it, wouldn't that possibly be a good thing? Um, you know, I gen- or you know, how are you? How are you envisioning the trajectory of this? Is it yeah. now here in the United States? You know, we've been a bit uh, traumatized by yeah. by the the rise to power of a complete, you know, blatant criminal and clown named Trump. Um, mm-hmm. Is this in some way similar to the Trump movement? No. Okay. No, Japan in Japan. Um, yeah, it's a very different society and. No, the, like the ultranationalists in Japan were very um, in favor of the the dominant 
policies for handling. Uh, so okay. what happened in Japan during the COVID years? Okay. Um, it was, the policies were roughly like the United States, but um, Japan has a very strong constitution okay. and kind of like, kind of like Sweden, um, there were limits on what the government could do, how far the government could impose its idea of how to cope with this, this virus. So um, uh, there were uh, people did refer to the, there was, there was something like a lockdown, but there were no, there were no, there's never a hard lockdown. People were never, um, there were never, never any laws against well, what, leaving your house or what kind of outbreak was there? Uh, it was, very mild. The, the first year w was 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 not much of a problem. Uh, mostly, it hit elderly people. There were okay. there. Um, that was that. And so, yeah, thousands of elderly people um, lost their lives during the first year. But well, that sounds very bad. Yeah, which okay. is very bad. Uh, yeah. But that that happens every year with influenza too, and so influenza is also very dangerous for for elderly people. So um, and. Um, the numbers of people who are dying from influenza went way down, uh, something like a thousand times, uh, uh, one one thousandth of the usual number of influenza cases. Um, so, and and SARS-CoV um, really uh, affected people, uh, who are a lot of elderly people. But um, on the whole, uh, middle-aged people and and young people, children especially, uh, were on the whole just fine, and. So um, even though the, the, you know Japan had lots of people from Wuhan, uh, that uh, there were Chinese were there was something like seven hundred fifty thousand Chinese coming into the country, so mm -hmm. so you know we were exposed to it right away, of course. Um, but for for one for some I don't know why, but uh, for some reason uh, it wasn't really wasn't that bad. Japan okay. and people ascribe that to the policies of the of the government. But I'm a little skeptical of that. And so, but as first um, freedom, we really, in a legal sense, we didn't have any legal, major legal changes at the beginning. There was one law that deals with infectious diseases, uh, which was changed under the Abe, the Shinzo Abe administration, and that gave power to. Um, prefectural governors. Japan is broken up into prefectures, mm -hmm. kind of like states, uh, kind of like in the United States with states. The governor of each prefecture was able to, if they felt that, that based on the information that they were getting, if they felt that they were, the pandemic was was getting out of control and they really needed um, some strong measures, then they could make a request to the central government. Um, and all it took was the prime minister before this kind of thing was decided by the legislature, which is called the diet in Japan. But now the prime minister, just the prime minister and the governor of a prefecture, just those two people could make a decision to enforce uh, policies that were counter to the, going against laws that who would violate, violate, like for it's example, exactly. they could, yeah. yeah, you know, you got the idea, kind of a lock, lockdown type of policies. And and you said that this helped this sort of up, yeah. up and coming party 
Yeah. Um, which you, do you consider this something, you know, you had mentioned this to me earlier and I'm just trying to understand like, what does, is, is it something new in Japan that there's a sort of yeah. up and brash party? Is that something new? Yeah. Um, because they, they present themselves as the defenders of Japan. And, and this the, it's called the restoration. Ishin, Ishin means restoration. So literally, um, the restoration well, society. This brings us back to Yukio Mishima, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's yeah. kind of, it's in an ultranationalist. It's kind of a, let's go back, let's go back to the traditional family. Let's go back to a powerful Japan. Let's, we got to protect the people from these threats, these, these threats that are coming in from the outside. And the, that fits in very well with, with the virus. The virus is also something perceived as coming from China, coming from the outside. And we got to, we got, we got to stick together and we need top down. We need, you know, a kind of strict hierarchical society with, you know, top down control. And we got to, we got to uh, surveil. We need, we need to turn it into a surveillance society. Well, this you know? does sound like the fascist movement in the United States. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, the fascist movement in the United States is a movement for patriarchy, tradition, concentrated wealth in the hands of a few, and, you know, a very structured and, you know, statist authoritarian society. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that is why while the Trumpists, the Trumpers in the United States might think that they value freedom, they're actually pushing authoritarianism. And it sounds similar yeah. Again, I don't want to be reductive. And let me, I really want to actually make okay. sure that a couple more questions I want to, this yeah. is great, by the way. Yeah. You're, you're really, you're, what you're doing is you're not giving me the answers I expect. You're giving me the answer, which, which is good. Because if you're giving me the answers I expect, then I'm not learning anything. You're, you're really telling me what it's like in a place that I've never been. Um, and that's important. So, what do the people you meet in Japan think about the United States? Um, rising competition with China and are they as worried as I am that this is heading towards world war? No, <laughs> they're not worried. They're not, the vast majority of people here are not worried. Now, how is it that the country that suffered very terribly in world war two is not worried about world war three? That's that a great that? question. And I was asked that uh, recently by another journalist, American journalist, but yeah, it's, uh, why is that? Why why well, don't I, they why don't they worry? I, I ask I, myself that practically every day. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm out on the street and I'm making speeches. We have we have demonstrations once a week. Yeah. And I'm on a street corner and I see the people. I see the reaction of the people coming by, and I I address them sometimes directly. I say, you know. People, please, please think about oh. what we are doing right now. We are on the path towards war with China. Right? <laughs> this is China, and you know what China is. Japanese well, what, know what, what they know what China is. What, what when here in the United States we see China in a, 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 a through through a very tiny microscopic lens. I mean, we treat China as if it's another planet here in the United States. We don't know anything right. about Chinese culture. Yeah, very true. The people of Japan are closer. Yes, they couldn't be further from understanding Chinese culture, so they must be closer. So, yeah, what's the relationship between Chinese culture and Japanese culture? Right. Okay. China, as you know, China has three thousand years at least of uh, more than three thousand years of, of of history, 
but written history, uh, you know, solid written history yes. um, going back. So, and then Japan has a thousand years. There's actually, that's, that's like in, in English, that's like Beowulf. Very Japan, interesting. Japan has, uh, Japan, uh, in fact, some people say Japan produced the first novel a piece of fiction that was very yeah, similar okay. type of fiction called um, Genji Monogatari, the yeah. story of Genji. Um, You're saying China is older. I mean, obviously China produced the Tao Te Ching, right? Right. Um, China is older yeah. and very respected. Even now, Japanese, they do, they do respect China and they have, they, uh, they are very aware of the, I would say a good side of Japanese education is they, they do get a good, um, um, pretty good history education for ancient times for ancient, and what about, ancient what Japan about relationship with the current government of China or the um, current status yeah. quo in China. Yeah. Um, Japan is, is lined up with the United States, just like South Korea, as you know. Um, and so, and the media is, is dominated by uh, Western and, and Japanese corporations. Wow. Uh, but so you've heard of Dentsu, you've heard of Dentsu before. Dentsu no. is a D D N T S U is a, a media company, uh, advertising okay. company, and they dominate advertising uh, and radio, television, newspapers, um, and um, they're just a gigantic company. They used to be the largest in the world, largest advertising company in the world. So, I have heard, yes, yeah, they control the the majority of television commercials. So, and there, and so where do they get their money? It gets, comes from, from multinational corporations. So they don't have much loyalty to Japan or anybody, just, you know, whoever. And so they don't, they don't. Yeah. And so, yeah, Japanese are getting the same, pretty much, pretty much the same view of China that Americans are getting. Is Japan a war profiteering country? Yes. Yes. Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, um, um, other, other companies. Yeah. Uh, are, yeah, and Mitsubishi is is building the F thirty five. The they're assembling, doing the final assembly for the F thirty fives in East Asia. Uh, they have then the, that factory is actually an hour drive from where I am right now. Wow. Yeah, and that's it. And it's it's at an airport. They're going to be lining up. You know, their people are are worried now that they're going to be lining up F thirty fives on the runway, <laughs> and that's going to be prime. There, that's going to be a prime target if we get into war with China. I appreciate your direct answers, by the way. Um, and um, I, I want to bring up when you when you were saying how how is it that people aren't worried? Um, another writer, this is a Japanese writer, but I don't believe he's lived in Japan. Kazuo Ishiguro, right? The giant. Have you read the Buried Giant? No, I actually haven't read him. Well. Um, actually, I, I wish I could do a whole episode about it because what it's basically about, as, as you probably know, Kazuo Ishiguro is a Nobel Prize winning Japanese, ethnically Japanese writer who's who writes from a, a, or a cultural standpoint of England. Right. And he remains of the day and um, Never Let Me Go, which were made into two great movies. His book, The Buried Giant, is about war. And The Buried Giant oh. is is the memory of war which clouds people's minds and it's it's about and it's in the era where um where different early um 
English tribes are fighting and they are constantly forgetting things because they need to forget to survive. And the buried giant is, is the truth of war. So, um, yeah, I'm oh. glad that I was that little, <laughs> that little knowledge in um, because we talked about several writers. I love that this has been such a literary episode, but we're not done yet. Um, <laughs> I do love that, that, that we get to talk about books a bit here. Um, and I'm going to put all these book titles in the show notes. But before, I do have one more major topic, which is Okinawa. Yes. Can you tell me about your work in Okinawa? So the last several years... Uh, I've been involved in uh, a movement to stop the construction of two U.S. military bases, one of them called Takai and the other called Henoko. And the unfortunately, the, we failed to stop the construction of the, the, the Takai uh, base. And that is going to be a so-called helipad. Ospreys are, it's not a helicopter. It's a giant machine that can carry two bus loads full of troops and heavy equipment, weapons. Uh, it's a, it, and they're for moving, for moving troops quickly from one place to another. The idea is that Okinawa is south of Japan, therefore between Japan and China. Is that right? Right. Is that There's the a long... Um, Japan is an, Japan itself is an archipelago, but you can separate that section of the section of the archipelago that goes from from Kyushu, which is the south southern southwesternmost um, uh, island, from that island to all the way to Taiwan. There's another string of smaller islands, right. and the largest one is called the island of um, Okinawa. Yeah, and so that's why people refer to that whole. They, sometimes people, usually people, refer to all those that whole archipelago as um, as Okinawa, but in fact, the, the 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 traditional name Okinawa is actually a word that Japanese brought. The the older name in Chinese characters is is pronounced Ryukyu in Japanese, and in the local language, the the island of Okinawa, uh, that language in that language they refer to it as Luchu, L U C H U, but it's the same Chinese characters. Got it. And we, when we talk about Okinawa, we have to talk about the fact that in World War II, um, this the the large population of people who lived there who were ethnically distinct from from Japan, as I understand, yeah. suffered terribly right. during World War II. This right. was a, an That's area right. of incredible suffering. I mean, there were many holocausts. As, right. a, as an American Jew whose grandparents were in the Holocaust, I could say that there were many Holocausts during World War II, and mm -hmm. Okinawa was one of them. So yeah, one third, one third, and or one between some one fourth and one third of the population of Okinawa was died during and, the, and the Battle of Okinawa. We dare to build new military bases there. Right, and yeah, and and they've been uh, they've been continuously uh, occupied. By with they've been surrounded by U.S. military bases. Some of the best land, the best farmland of Okinawa, was stolen by the, by the U.S. Uh, military, and they've been occupied and and they've been in, living in this dangerous situation with troops violating laws left and right, and no no justice at all. Violence against women and, and car accidents and. Um, well, you yeah. said you failed to stop it. From, you know, when I hear that, yeah. I hear you probably tried bravely. We tried me? hard. <laughs> yeah, every week we have we have 
we have demonstrations every single, almost every weekend. Um, Wow. Even it, sometimes it's ridiculous. <laughs> there's like this as there's a snowstorm <laughs> and there's nobody walking on the street. We're the only we're the only ones out there. Who I mean, these the, people are really persistent. <laughs> who are the people doing this with you? We have a core of about 20 people. And then there are other lots of other people, maybe 50 people or so who occasionally come out and join us. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they know we're going to be out there every Saturday night. Uh, and um, we just try to campaign on a, on a busy street corner. Uh, and tell mm-hmm. tell people what's going on, the latest news, and and why we are we are against the um, the building of. Um, now it's only one because kind of given up on Takai. It's it's that's done. Um, but yeah. the Henoko base has not been completed yet, and that's going to be a very high tech um, military base. If we're not, mm. if that's we don't stop it. Well, yeah. you know, you said you failed, but don't don't feel like like you failed because you're bringing awareness and you're yeah you're you're getting people together in in the spirit of a better way. Yeah, we're um, educating there, people. There's an Okinawan presence here in the United States of peace activists. Um, I do think we've been talking a really long time, and we should probably wind up. What do you think? What is your perception of the situation with China? My perception is that we're stumbling into World War III. What yeah. is your perception? Yeah. To be honest, I I, th- I think we're already in World War III. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as anti-war, so... isn't that kind of a hard thing to realize? Mm-hmm. Like our worst nightmare is coming true. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's it's really depressing. For somebody who's been working in anti-war activism, that this and here we are for us to to face the fact that this scary shit is happening in the world right yeah, now. Yeah, this and is I, actually this is world. actually happening. Yeah, yeah. the Zaporizhia, the, the fact that Zaporizhia could be I blown mean, up as like become a, a dirty bomb, and um, you talk about Taiwan. the nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Yeah, our colleague John Ruer. Um, led a delegation or yes. was part of a delegation to this nuclear power plant in Ukraine, um, where they're just trying to be, te- you know, hold a little bit of territory of sanity around an actual nuclear power plant in the country that the Chernobyl disaster happened. I yeah. mean, to me, what happens to me, what's going on is that the drunk drivers are driving the car in the United States, in Russia. Um, and in uh, England, mm-hmm. and um, we're all strapped in the back seat. I've used yeah. that metaphor on this podcast. <laughs> That's good. Before, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that fits very well. How but, how are you dealing with the stress, and how is it to live in a society that emphasizes, you know, so much decorum and you know civility in a time of global incivility? How do you how do you manage that balance? Well, I've actually being part of the movement, I'm constantly getting seen the evidence of really good people doing the right thing. You know, that's that's one wow. that's one of the that's one of the great Yeah, so I'm constantly being inspired by people around me and um created Yeah, there's lots there's lots of creative people and th- there are some successes. We um Nagoya or the Aichi, the, the the state that we live in, um, the the, um, the governor of Aichi um, sent police 
I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I shouldn't blame it on the governor. I don't, it mm. might be the chief of police who did this. Um, but um, police were sent from Aichi to Henoko to um, put down or um, stop uh, the um, activists there who were blocking dump trucks and uh, who are constantly every single day, literally every single day. The Okinawans are there have worked so hard for peace. And so the movement is so strong down there that um, police were sent from all over Japan, various prefectures. But to make a long story short, we, uh, not me specifically, but some people I know were part of a um, lawsuit um, because the way that these police were dispatched was illegal. And they won in the Supreme Court uh, some months ago. And that was then the, the, the prefecture of Aichi Prefecture challenged the, 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 the decision and they lost. So it's totally wow. clear now they lost in the Supreme Court. It's totally clear that the citizens of Aichi who were promoting peace, who were, who were against the building of this, this um, uh, new base, U.S. military base in Henoko, mm-hmm. um, were successful. They won. And there so, so yeah, yeah, there are, there are victories. I shouldn't, Something I tend to start with the negative and I always, I always wind up forgetting to talk about the positive, but yeah, there are lots of, there's lots of good people and they, they care about, they're trying to stop discrimination in Japan against Koreans and Chinese. They're mm-hmm. they're They help people like me. Uh, they, who I'm also a foreigner and I, although I'm white, a white male and everything, I am a foreigner and I'm not, I don't have Japanese citizenship. And so that gives me certain disadvantages. So I get, I get help from people and there's just a lot of, when you're, that's one of the benefits of being in the movement is when everybody else is like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? We already know what to do. We've been doing it. I mean, maybe, and maybe, maybe we made mistakes. Maybe we don't have the right formula. Maybe we need to try some, try something different, but, but at least we're trying, we're doing our best. That's you know, very well said, Joe. That says it all. Yeah. So that, yeah, that. So I'm. That's what keeps me going. Really, is as other I, people seeing seeing really good people doing things that are really not in their best interest. They're 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 trying to help people on the other side of the planet, or they're trying to help people in China, or that uh, is in their best interest. We know it is. Yeah. I mean, in the long run, it is there in their best interest. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is true of the whole peace movement. Then this is why we all do what we do. We need more connection between your half of the world and my half of the world. Like right now, it's morning to you. It's nighttime to me. But that doesn't mean we can't communicate. We have the technology. We're on the same planet. People in the United States, China may as well be another planet for all we know about what the people who live in China are like. And I don't think we know much of what the people in Japan or Korea are like either, or the Philippines or Vietnam. So I'm so glad to talk to you, Joe. This is not enough connection. I'd like to talk to, I'd like to break the language barrier, you know, (laughs) I'd like to go deeper into understanding the culture you're in. Japan is a great country. I feel very fortunate that I've been able to live here. I've been able to enjoy a very peaceful existence, very safe. By the way, I, I complain about the, the Corona policies. I don't agree with many of them, but um, 
the cleanliness here is also it's a that's a safety issue you know the fact that japanese are very very conscientious about mm -hmm. keeping surfaces clean and the the air clean and they're very um sensitive to other people's needs very um cooperative and so it's a it's a it's a wonderful country to live in in many ways especially for someone in my with my position it probably mm -hmm. is very different if you're korean if you come here as an immigrant from korea and you're, you're you're facing discrimination constantly it's probably a whole whole different no i wouldn't say probably definitely is a whole different thing i know a, a jamaican guy and he had, he had a really hard time here really? although he he enjoyed he enjoys japanese culture but he was treated in a very different way from the way i was you know he's being stopped by the police being suspected for for committing crimes you know hmm. and i was i've never actually i've been stopped a few times but it's never been a big deal so right. so yeah i've been really happy here but um unfortunately japan is is joining the us in this crusade against the east <laughs> that's what I, the way i see it is really we are part of this is some kind of like attack on the east and japan and south korea are are right are right there so it's funny that you use the phrase the east especially because japan is in the east yeah um but what what i mean really to me what it is is a I, I I tend to economic interpretations. I'm not a Marxist at all, mm -hmm. but um, I am an anarcho-pacifist, and I believe capitalism is. <laughs> I'm glad you're agreeing. Um, yeah. you should know you just agreed with me. You like that label as well. Um, I believe that capitalism is certainly choking or choking us to death right now. Yeah, and um, that's another reason why we're fighting the G the G seven. And that, and that, to me, the explanation for our stumbling into World War III is all about capitalism and fossil fuels and weapons sales. Right. You know what? We've, <laughs> we we could talk yeah. more, Joe, but um, yeah. this has been great. Thank you so yeah. much for talking to me and opening my eyes a little bit to... Not at all, are. Mark. You made it easy for me to talk. <laughs> great. Okay. And, okay. Um, and I'll talk to you later. Have a good rest of your day and I'll be going to sleep. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bye. Good night, Mark. Good night. much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.